coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy Monday to you. Welcome to my little portion of the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or thanks for listening to The Ron Show wherever you podcast. I appreciate that as well. You got to start with a story that just got my blood boiling when I came across it reading the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Catherine Landergan reporting what should just be jaw-dropping and repugnant and, again, get anyone who has any compassion for children should have their blood boiling. The headline grabbed my attention, and then the more I read, the angrier I got. The headline, Georgia allegedly asked judges to consider detaining special needs kids. This judge claimed uh, that the state of Georgia's Department of Family and Children's Services sought to have special needs kids detained since they were not able to be placed. This testimony surfaced in a Senate subcommittee hearing uh, looking at the state's foster care system. Senators Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, working with talk about the odd couple, uh, our own Senator John Ossoff on this. Uh, this story actually dropped around 3 o'clock today. Anyhow, let's just dive right on into it. A juvenile judge alleged today that the state's Division of Family and Children's Services director asked Georgia courts to consider temporarily detaining children with special needs while the state tried to find a placement for them, a move that the judge said would violate the law. The article continues, the allegations were made during a U.S. Senate Human Rights Subcommittee hearing in Atlanta, chaired by Senator John Ossoff, of course, of Georgia. The subcommittee is examining alleged abuse and neglect in the state's foster care system. Ossoff, along with Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, announced the inquiry in February, which was prompted in part by an investigation from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in late 2022. Here's the quote. As judges, we do not lock up children, especially special needs children, because we cannot find a place for them. That is Carolyn Altman, a juvenile court judge in Paulding County. She made that statement giving testimony at this subcommittee hearing. These children have complex behavioral and mental health needs, and some of them have criminal backgrounds, making them very difficult for the state to place in a foster home. The judge said this is the same population of kids that the state has had to place in hotels or even office spaces. The article continues, the Department of Human Services, which oversees DFCS, did not respond to requests for comment. Carolyn Altman alleged that the remarks were made by DHS Commissioner Candace Brochi, who also is the director for DFCS, at a meeting in August with about 30 other judges and DFCS leadership. Altman says the law says children are only to be detained, quote, in the most limited circumstances, and that a child, quote, shall not be detained due to a lack of a more appropriate facility. Altman also alleged, according to the article, that one of her colleagues brought up that law, that the law specifically prohibits detaining a child because of a lack of placement, and DHS counsel indicated the law could be changed. According to the AJC article, by the way, Altman was quick to point out that these were not just some sleight-of-hand comment that somebody heard one person telling another person. She said, quote, they were not overheard in passing. It was in a room of 30-something judges. 
two months ago. This is just now getting out. She went on to say that she understood the request to extend a child's detention when there's not a legal basis for them to remain detained. These children, who are very high needs, might otherwise end up in hotels or DFCS offices. She said, DFCS has an incredibly difficult job. Finding placements for children with these needs is incredibly difficult. The answer is create more placements to address the problem. Now, a juvenile court judge from Gwinnett County named Nan Al Sims testified that she was also at that meeting and also alleged those remarks were made. She said, frankly, I was heartbroken. I think if our child welfare system has gotten to the point where we want to extend a child's time in detention just because we can't find a place for them, then something is wrong and it's not working. Here, here. Y'all, I just, I can't help but just get enraged the more I read of, of this circumstance. First of all, let me give you a little background. Um, my former sister-in-law, who she and I are still very tight, love her dearly. She's like one of my best friends, um, sought to foster and then adopt a special needs child that I don't really remember the circumstances. I believe she and her family, her, her dad's a minister, uh, used to volunteer at a nearby orphanage, um, child shelter, some sort. And she met, I'm going to just say his name's Cody. She met this kid, Cody, who was uh, born to a mother who was a drug addict, which meant that Cody was born with all manner of complicated issues to overcome. Cody is an early 20s adult now, and some might argue not a functioning able to ever be in his lifetime independent adult, but Cody comes with just baggage galore. It, it turns out that Cody's situation was really way more than, uh, at the time, a single woman with three boys of her own, even with extended family willing to pitch in, could deal with. Uh, we all love Cody. We all cared for Cody and did our part whenever we could to, to pitch in and to give Cody a sense of extended family. But at the end of the day, and I remember going to facilities with her to, to, to pick Cody up, and these facilities, while not prisons or detention centers, like the, the DFS, uh, CS had seems to want to be able to utilize as a path of last resort, they're, they're not glamorous. <clears throat> they're not well funded. The employees who handle these cases are overwhelmed. And need I remind you, we live in a state with a $11.7 billion at minimum, $11.7 billion surplus that the current governor and soon to be Senate candidate, let's not fool ourselves, is going to be itching to just dole back out in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Another gas tax holiday for us, just in time for <laughs> election season or the need to boost some numbers or property tax rebates, which of course, you know, doesn't go to all Georgians or uh, an income tax, re something along those lines. And listen, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that a, a, a $50 break here or there or $200, $250, or $1,000 income tax rebate to you wouldn't be welcome and wouldn't come in handy for you. I'm not saying that that's not the case at all. 
I am saying, however, we keep seeing evidence of situations where the state falls woefully short of meeting its obligation for all of its citizens. In this case, literally the youngest and the least among us. Now listen, for its part, DFCS has been prioritizing the ending of the practice of putting kids in hotels and uh, its own offices. As the article states, uh, these kids were among the most high-risk kids for whom it's difficult to find a foster facility that will take them in. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did report in September that DHS managed to get the number of kids staying in hotels and offices down to zero for one night. One night. Earlier this year, the article continues, it wasn't unusual for there to be up to 70 children being kept in a hotel on the same night. Uh, Further down in the story, at the hearing, three judges described a system that is in crisis. Staff are overwhelmed, I just said that, underpaid, and suffer from inadequate training and burnout. There are also not enough providers who can care for these kids. The Gwinnett County Judge Sims, who we spoke uh, about earlier, said that what she has seen is a culture of, quote, child protection by the numbers. Listen to this. She said, cases triage to boost statistics and then closed prematurely in misleading triumph. It's widely known that DFCS has been under immense pressure to address what has been a series of public relations crises. What I have seen is that pressure leading to the neglect or deliberate avoidance of the most complex and heart-wrenching cases. There are so many different routes to take this story, too. There are sidebars. There are off-ramps to this story. Notably, of course, the treatment of these at-risk special needs kids has to be priority, right? We have to fund this better. We're underfunding it. We, we have a political climate in this country that seeks to essentially have every level of our government take the low bid. Lowest bid wins for as minimal as possible instead of taking the route, what best serves those in need? We also live in a country now where the right for a woman with an at-risk pregnancy to end that pregnancy, her her options are severely limited. Georgia, notably, has a six-week abortion ban. Women, of course, often don't even know that they're pregnant before the six-week mark in the pregnancy in the first place. And a lot of that has to do with being underinsured or uninsured. And notably, Georgia, with its $11.7 billion at minimum, surplus continues to fail to expand Medicaid so that women, regardless of income or financial status, have the opportunity to get the sort of health care they need to stay on top of their reproductive status. And make no mistake, I'm not dismissively or coldly or callously saying, well, if abortion were made legal, this wouldn't be such a... First of all, I'm not suggesting that life has to end like that. I am saying, however, because of the lack of health care for at-risk women and uh, impoverished women, and because we don't have the sort of healthcare options for those who are suffering from drug addiction, in Cody's mother's case, for example, we just wind up with more cases than are necessary. 
What if Cody's mom were able to get treated for her substance abuse problem long before becoming sexually active or becoming pregnant? Or what if Cody's mom were to at least have the opportunity to get the sort of prenatal screenings needed to determine she was pregnant before the six-week ban and had the opportunity to decide for herself and for a lifetime of struggle for her potential offspring to circumvent a lifetime of struggle. And listen, I love Cody. Glad Cody's with us. But I also know that Cody is and has been a lot for a foster family a lot for a foster system to deal with, and in one case, has been a danger to society. Not being hyperbolic when I say think Adam Lanza. But hey, we have a fiscally conservative governor with an $11.7 billion surplus. So there's that. Back after this, The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Monday. We live in, how many times have I said this in the last month, some really curious times. (laughs) We really do. And it's just fascinating to watch as the Israeli-Hamas fight unfold. And we see, I don't want to say infighting, but we do see some unease on either side of the political spectrum. Because how many years... Through the Trump presidency, I'd say all four, did we live through the undercurrent of why nationalism and Nazism that that president at the time didn't want to call out? And yet the same party that he is the lead nominee for, still with his 91 indictments, he and the, the, the party that he is in the lead for receiving the nomination for the 2024 presidential Uh, ticket, are just falling all over themselves to call out anything that speaks ill of one Israeli misstep. Well, that's anti-Semitism. Okay, dial it down. Not the case. Um, And honestly, we see this happening even on the left. We we do. We see a lot of this. Uh, How how many of you follow Esther Esther Panich? Uh, the, The one... Jewish American legislature inside the Georgia General Assembly. Uh, it, it's, it's been a lot of painting with a broad brush, and I understand how emotionally sensitive she is to that. I, I do understand. I do. I truly do. I'm not Jewish. I'm not religious at all, but I do understand what it's like to live a lifetime as a member of a marginalized community. And yes, we, we can all be hypersensitive to anti-Semitism, uh, homophobia, Islamophobia. We have one Palestinian-American representative in the Georgia General Assembly. And I, listen, I, I, I readily admit, I like Rua Roman. I think she's a, a very nice woman. Uh, I've thought the same of Esther Panich, but I, 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 feel like, I feel like Rua has been the one a little bit more calm-headed, at least on social media. But again, there, there, there may be some bias. I don't know. And I'm not Palestinian either. I just, I, I just find it interesting that we live in such curious times where this, uh, this, this spate of anti-Semitism, and we're seeing it. It's not made up. Uh, there was an anti-Semitic message um, sort of laser-pointed onto an overpass 
over Interstate 75 over the weekend in Kennesaw that said, this land is our land, Heil Hitler, repulsive, just repugnant. We're seeing the anti-Semitic littering of literature in targeted neighborhoods, in neighborhoods where there are a lot of Jewish-American residents. By the way, this is the 65th anniversary week, I believe, of the temple bombing here in Atlanta. So I, I get the sensitivity. I, I really do. I, I've, I've, I feel that to my core. Again, as someone who has lived as an LGBTQ plus person for as long as I can recall knowing that that's what I was and knowing what it's like to have to walk on eggshells in certain quarters around certain people to not reveal my nature my sexual identity, my preference. It's why I, I believe uh, I, I, can, I can say that I have empathy for the African-American and understand their marginalization. But I also have to say that the political hyperbole just gets absolutely beyond reproach and has to be called out as well. We have to call this stuff out. You, you, you can't point to everything and say, well, that's anti-Semitism. You can't point to everything and say, that's Islamophobia, uh, that's anti-black, that's this, that's that. You know, a lot of times conservatives bristle at the notion of being labeled a racist. Okay, fair enough. You may not be racist. You may have said something that is racist, or you may have done something that exhibits traces of racism. And even then, it's like, okay, we'll just accept that we're saying that and maybe learn from it or recalculate or, or hear hear us out or hear someone out if they if if they if they say that to you why instead of oh, I'm not no just say why why do you think what I said or what I did was hear them out rationally cooler head and then you've got Republican representative Maria Salazar from South Florida on Fox Business earlier. Socialism is Marxism, or it's the neo-Marxists, the way I call them. And that is what infiltrates the people that are around President Biden. And those are the ones who are not sending a clear signal that we stand next to the guy, meaning Israel, the only democratically elected government in the region, Mm. surrounded by pretty bad enemies, and, and someone who did not attack anyone but was attacked. So you see, the, the values are reversed because if you are socialist, you're anti-Semitic. Okay. First of all, Representative Salazar, there are three members in Congress elected on the Socialist Party of America ticket, who, by the way, are also Jewish. Well, that's awkward. Wisconsin's Victor Berger, New York's Meyer London, and Fiorello LaGuardia. It has to be pointed out, by the way, that... We have elements of socialism throughout this country, elements that politicians trip all over themselves to embrace. You point to a Republican and say, you're going to cut Social Security? And they're quick to, uh, no, I never said that. So you're here to protect Social Security. Uh, uh, yeah, sort of. And, and then, you know, you can get into the nuance. But by and large, they don't want to get rid of Social Security. Social Security is socialism, y'all. Having U.S. military, local law enforcement, fire protection, City, state, county, federal maintenance of roads and highways and bridges and overpasses and rail lines, your your air and seaports having air traffic control and port 
control. This is all, they're all elements of socialism, Medicare, elements of socialism, elements that are popular with the American public and or benefit unfettered capitalism. Again, uh, Representative Salazar is a Cuban-American representing South Florida. You want to know how Florida went from being a battleground purple state to a leans red, reliable GOP state? It's that hyperbolic tying of socialism to Marxism. You understand when you have a population with ties to Cuba, they're going to fear Marxism. And so it's politically calculating, very Frank Luncian, if you will, that the word socialism has such an awful connotation with the Cuban-American voting bloc. And frankly, I don't think Democrats have done enough to dispel that trope. And it's cost them, again, in South Florida and in the state of Florida in general. But I'm here to call it out. More on show when we return on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Want to be on the show? Have a cause or campaign you'd like to speak up for? Email Ron at ronshowatl.com or call 404-919-2725. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So I didn't have a chance to get to this last week. I had a lot of guests on, and I mean, I love that. But I also like when I just kind of have a blank slate today and can kind of go over some notes to uh, cover some stuff that has uh, hit my radar that I just had to kind of put aside and say, I'm going to get to that, and I want to bring it to y'all. So here I am. Friend of the show, columnist at the Georgia Recorder, and reporter as well, has uh, Jay Bookman has written uh, a piece, and uh, it posted October 19th at georgiarecorder.com. We'll put that in the show notes at ronshowetl.com. Headline, without compromise, extremism dominates. And again, <laughs> I find it just interesting that it, the 2023 version of myself and the 2016 very much behind Bernie Sanders version of myself might even be at odds with each other. But I also kind of would like to think that I was mature enough back then to at least listen to reason. I hope. Now, first, I should point out that we have this tendency in the world of punditry to equate what's happening on one side to the other. Go Well, if you see how crazy this has gotten over here, imagine if it got that way over here. We're seeing the extremes on the right continue to cling to control of its party. And because it can control a party, it can control conceivably a country. And we all collectively held our breath for four years while that happened from 2017 to 2021. So I don't want to say, well, had Bernie won, because I think a lot of I think a lot of wonderful things would have happened had Bernie won. I think it also would have sparked uh, a, a renaissance of youth voting that has been slow to come back, and un, only under some pretty high duress in 2020 and 2022 has seen a bit of a bump. Anyway, let me dive into Jay's piece, and then we can kind of go from there. If you make compromise impossible, you make extremism inevitable. First line. Absolutely. And, and do y'all not think that gerrymandering has done that? That the Electoral College making it so that only a handful of states even need to be campaigned to while the rest of the country just collectively holds its breath to see what Arizona and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Georgia are going to do? Back to the piece. 
We see that dynamic playing out once again with tragic consequences in the Middle East. For decades, Bookman writes, Hamas and its extremist backers have refused to acknowledge that Israel has a basic right to exist. Israel, in turn, has given lip service to the creation of a viable Palestine while diligently working to ensure that such an entity can never exist. Both Palestinians and Israelis have allowed their extremists to veto any potential deal. Neither has been able or willing to compromise. That leaves them where they are, with war as their only remaining means of working it out. Jay brings it home we see the same dynamic at work in Washington. For decades now, reaching back to the days of Newt Gingrich as Speaker of the House, conservatives have rejected compromise as a means of problem-solving. They have treated compromise as surrender, as defeat, and anyone of their tribe who proposes compromise with the other side is rejected as a traitor to the cause, as a rhino. Side note, we... No one very popular on the right political figure used the term rhino a lot on Truth Social. His Truth Social. Back to Jay. As we've seen in the GOP's debacle over choosing a speaker, the no-compromise approach has become so ingrained into the party's DNA that House Republicans can't, quote, get to yes even when dealing with each other. They've learned that saying no is easy. No is safe. Yes involves risk. It requires a degree of courage that they simply don't possess. And if compromise is removed as a way of getting things done, if no deals can be cut, then one of two things are going to happen. The first, Jay writes, is nothing. Without compromise, nothing passes. No decisions can be made. No speaker can be elected. Tough choices are put off year after year, and problems that might have been addressed relatively easily are allowed to fester and grow. As an aside, how many years did we go without much-needed transportation spending, infrastructure spending? President Obama wanted to deal with it. The party of no compromise that controlled the Senate and enough of the House and sometimes of the Senate kept that at bay. And to be fair, on the left, there were those that did not want Donald Trump's signature on a law that was going to have lasting effects either. Back to Bookman. That's a particular problem under the system created by the founders. The U.S. Constitution, with its intricate checks and balances, was designed as a compromise-forcing mechanism. Without compromise, it simply cannot function, and governing ceases. As a result, he writes... We can't address the debt. We can't address immigration. <laughs> we can't address climate change. One side of the party, we refuse to admit it even exists. But uh, anyway, all would require compromise, and compromise is impossible. We almost lost our democracy after the 2020 elections because somehow Republicans convinced themselves that allowing the peaceful transfer of power wasn't their duty as Americans. It was an unacceptable compromise with the Democrats that only rhinos like Liz Cheney would support. Bookman writes, Without compromise, the only alternative way to get things done is through brute domination. My side can get what it wants only if it achieves overwhelming power over your side. 
In the brief window when Barack Obama had the votes, he passed the Affordable Care Act. When Donald Trump had the votes, he passed tax cuts for the rich. When Joe Biden had the votes, he passed a major infrastructure bill. But over the past 20 years, that's about the extent of legislative success, Bookman writes. But the politics of domination require that you dominate, and Republicans do not and cannot. They do not hold the White House, he writes. In the past eight presidential elections, Republicans have won the popular vote just once. In 2004, when George W. Bush was still riding a post-9-11 wave of patriotism. They also don't hold the Senate. They do hold the House, but by a very slender five votes. Yet they have convinced themselves and their base that with that five-vote margin in the House, they can dominate by holding the government and the country hostage, threatening to do real damage to both unless they get their way. (laughs) Bookman surmises, it's a ridiculous theory. It has never worked and will never work. But to even attempt such a stunt tells us a lot about the frustration that conservatives have brought on themselves. They spurn compromise in favor of domination, and they aren't capable of achieving that domination through the ballot box. So where does that leave them? Increasingly, in social media and think tanks, and even in outlets such as Fox News, conservative thought leaders have begun toying with the idea that if they can't achieve domination through the electoral process, then domination must be sought through some means other than elections. And in case you think that's alarmist, what was the January 6th insurrection and attempted overturning of the election, if not a bid to seize power through means other than elections? He finishes this piece, When you hear mutterings of civil war, or secession, or references to the Second Amendment, what you are hearing are the late stage consequences of rejecting compromise. Because without compromise, democracy cannot work, and we are at the mercy of extremists. Now, to go back to where I began this discussion, again, with the acknowledgement that in the world of punditry, we try to equate an extremism on one side with an extremism on the other. The extreme left, I would argue, wants universal health care, maybe a universal basic income, at the very least, an adjustment to the minimum wage to meet current economic realities. The ability for any child who can matriculate through high school and be accepted into a college, the ability to go to said college or post-secondary institution of whatever higher learning there would be, trade school, tech school, whatever, without fear of financial barrier. So extreme. The extreme left wants more than one day on the calendar for you to vote and believes that even that one day should at least be a federal holiday. Ooh, so extreme. The extreme left acknowledges climate change. Like it's hitting us over there. I I heard a statistic today. I want to say, was it, uh, I think I was on uh, WABE driving to Cherokee County to go to a listing appointment, that the average October temperature in the state of Georgia has climbed four degrees. Since 1970, 
four degrees doesn't sound like much, maybe, but okay, here's a great example. It's a day-to-day in the 80s, right? What do you have your thermostat set to? 72? Change it to 76. And let's see how long it takes before you realize how stuffy your house got. But again, there are elements of extremism on the left that even I, the Bernie guy, sometimes get exasperated over. I I, I hear so much rhetoric, especially on social media, from folks. And again, I've been finely tuned, uh, attuned to the Cop City saga here uh, in Atlanta. So I follow a lot of those voices who want to tell you all cops are bad. ACAB. Okay, that's, that's extreme. I have been to know and befriended over the years a lot of police officers who I know aren't bad people and well-intentioned. Even if maybe their, their training or the, the culture that they're beholden to or the policies they have to adhere to may not be exactly what we want. I don't happen to believe that the president... For all that he's done, and I honestly, what a tightrope. I, I, I simply marvel at the tightrope walking that President Biden has to do right now while exhibiting pro-Israeli sentiment, but while also back-channeling and sometimes not even doing so, being more overt in, in, in exalting to Benjamin Netanyahu that he has to look out for civilians in the fray as well. And make no mistake, Hamas doesn't make that easy. There are those on the left, the extreme left, who want to label Biden as a genocide president. Well, I mean, come on. That's, that's insane. And I would also tell those extremes on the left, elements of extremism on the left, the, the alternative you realize, the alternative is the 91 indicted former president who enabled the Proud Boys and white nationalism and anti-Semitism to just kind of simmer under the surface in the first place, who is not exactly the most pro-Islamic, pro-Palestinian. Imagine he were in the White House. Do you think he would be warning Benjamin Netanyahu to be mindful of the civilians caught in the crosshairs? Think it out, y'all. Think it out. There's the element of extremism that wants to call out the president for having not been able to follow through fully on his pledge to evaporate, to just eviscerate, eliminate student loan debt across the board. Okay, so he hasn't been able to accomplish that, but he has been chipping away at it. And oh, by the way, there's been plenty of opposition, headwinds, and legal barriers as well. You have to acknowledge that. You have to acknowledge that. You can't just be radicalized to the point that you're not paying attention to the shortcomings, not of the individual or of the party or of the movement, but of the system that you are frustrated with. And honestly, at the end of the day, here's where I feel like your two parties and their extremist wings are vastly different. On the one side, I I, I have to tell you, and, and again, sometimes much to my chagrin, the Democratic Party 
never tries to pander to its extremism, to its uh, strain of extremism by saying, oh, we're going to do that for you. Oh, we're, we're going to, this is, uh, un, until our last night, this is what we're going to do. The Democratic Party, again, sometimes much to my chagrin, takes a more pragmatically liberal, less progressive, but liberal approach, measured approach. Because they know, first of all, the system is what it is, and there are limitations electorally, uh, with, with the, the, the Electoral College and gerrymandering, et cetera, and so on. And also, hey, y'all, you got to show up every two years, not every four. On the right, on the other hand, that, 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 thre- that, that strain, that threat of extremism exists because of decades of misinformation from right-wing punditry, talk radio, cable news, that is instead of being tempered by the party and their politicians, that group of Pauls has been riding that misinformation wave into office. Tell you what, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the author of that piece, Jay Bookman, joins us to discuss on The Ron Show, the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of The Ron Show for Monday, and we have the opportunity to speak with the author of the piece we just spoke about from the Georgia Recorder. Jay Bookman joins us. Jay, how have you been, buddy? I've been fine. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for joining us. So this article really kind of captures, I think, the essence of what kind of has not just this country, but as you pointed out in the Middle East, in the grips of stagnancy, the uh, inability for extremes to compromise. And I thought it was pretty eloquent how you pointed out that we we see this playing out in uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but that when you bring it home, we're also seeing this play out here. And I even took the tack that while there are two sides of extremism politically in this country, one party seems to pander to its extreme, while the other sort of tries to suppress it a little bit. Do you see that as well? I do. I do. Part of it is, I think, as you may have explored this earlier, it all goes back to Newt Gingrich and his, he made compromise. A dirty he word. Took it off the, he took, made it a dirty word. He took it off the table. People m- mention a lot about Newt's, uh, the, the words you can call your opponents, traitor, words like that. He wasn't just name calling. He was naming them at, like like he was saying they are traitors mm-hmm. they are communists they are these things and once you name your opponent those things and treat them that way compromise is no longer possible yeah even if you wanted to you can't go back to somebody that you just call an enemy of the state and bargain with because then your electorate goes well wait a minute doesn't that make you as well Exactly. And that's been the dynamic that has been in play in Republican politics for the last 30 years. Do you see any hint of this disappearing? No. Hmm. I do not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, 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 a, that's a quick summation. I, I thought maybe for a second we would see the potential, I guess, for a Liz Cheney if she could survive her election. But I think she fell victim to what even herself, her father, and for the last 30 years or so, a generation or more of Republicans have created a monster that they cannot corral. Correct. Correct. They, they they thought they could create this monster and, and manage it and deal with it. And over time, the people who thought they could manage it have been replaced by people who really, truly believe it. What worries me is that I do start to see some elements on the left that kind of have me a little concerned as well. Obviously, Cop City, a huge local issue. But now, uh, you, you know, you, you, you may be, or I, I may be anyway, concerned that there's some bridge burning going on where you've got grassroots organizers here who are not going to assist 
state Democrats in any way, shape, form, or fashion holding it against them that there's not been a lot of an outspoken uh, opposition to Cop City. There, there's the, the, the pro-Palestinian, you know, frame now that wants to call Biden a genocide president. Are we, are we too far out to worry about this, or is this something for Democrats to be attuned to and to be concerned of? Oh, I think it's definitely something to be concerned about. You can't make the mistake the Republicans did of of turning the party over to those voices, mm-hmm. uh, but but uh, you also can't. I mean, there's a there's a message there as well, even if it's crudely put. And um, it gets back to what the piece I talked about in the piece. There are two ways for to solve things. One is through compromise, and if you take compromise off the table, your only other way to make progress is to dominate. To mm-hmm. to 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 take total control. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing here. And neither party really has the means to do that. With uh, No, they between, yeah, between the Electoral College, gerrymandering on both sides at several state levels, uh, and and literally the, the hyper-partisan uh, level of society right now. 40% is one way, 40% is the other, and the other 20% are kind of in play. Well, but you see it playing out you're right about in the national level, nobody has the ability to do that, to, to dominate. Mm-hmm. But you do see it play out at state levels. Um, in a lot of states, what you see happening in Tennessee and Ohio and other places like that, uh, where the Republican Party does dominate and, and just runs roughshod over uh, any opposition. Um, that is a lot of the folks that, I mean, you, our new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, comes out of the Louisiana state legislature, where the Republicans have dominated for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how he was trained to operate. And you're seeing, you know, that that, uh, that mindset, that, that training that now showing up at the federal level as well. So you, you, don't, you don't see any hint of a fever break then? I don't know. I've been thinking I've seen seen it for the last ten years, but it it, it, it never seems to arrive. Right, uh, and I th- it's continuing to build. Something's going to break. Yeah. What whether it's our democracy or the fever or something's going to break. You yeah. you can't uh, sustain this level of uh, chaos. And that's Forever. where I get. That's where I get back to the concerns on the left of the the the, the, the grassroots uh, disgruntlement, I guess you would say, with uh, the, the Biden Harris administration, whether it be student loan or the inability to 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 get plausible action, I guess, on gun control, reproductive rights, uh, the, the the Israeli Palestine, the, the the administration's having to walk a tightrope on all of these and, and facing obstacles that I feel like some of their own base doesn't anticipate or or, or acknowledge exists. Um, if I understood your question correctly, I don't think it's the Democratic base that's that's demanding. These no, things. no, the the extremes. I think there, there are elements of extremism again on both sides of the island. We have just extreme pockets on the left, a, a more diverse uh, pocket of extremism. I think depending on the subject you're talking about. Again, I, I didn't come in here in, in 2020 a huge fan of Joe Biden. I was you know more more in the Bernie camp, but I also see like what he and his administration are trying to accomplish, and I acknowledge the obstacles before them. But I think he catches a lot of flack from those on the left for not being able to accomplish things without them acknowledging that there are obstacles to those accomplishments. Yes, that is, I think that's very well put. And I think that's a, that is the reflection of what's happening, on, what did happen on the right. The extremists there have had no patience with those Republican leaders who said, there are obstacles, we can't do all these things you're telling us you want us to do. Mm. 
And what the, the Republican basis said, well, then we're going to put in somebody who will. And, and again, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Again, when you when you have uh, politicians and political parties picking their voters instead of, uh, you know, via gerrymandering, instead of letting the voters uh, weigh in with some uh, competitive races to at least find some mediation at the ballot box and then in your legislative bodies. Absolutely. Um, gerrymandering for way too many politicians, especially, again, at the state level, but also at the federal. Your biggest threat is at your own party's primary. You're right. So so you you run as far to the right as you possibly can. That takes care of your primary opposition, and, and you don't have to worry about what happens in the general. Without compromise, extremism dominates the uh, piece from Georgia recorder uh, author Jay Bookman. Jay, thanks for joining us. We'll share that in today's show notes at ronshowetl.com. Thank you, Ron. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americawonradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Show notes at ronshowetl.com. See you tomorrow.